Let the drama kick, the drama kick die. Let the drama kick, let the drama kick die. Our priority is putting people first, the middle class families that have been affected for the last two years, and really making sure that they receive whatever full assistance they can. So we're doing this around the clock. We're not going to stop, and we're not going to let these uh, numbers deter us. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And that was Labor Secretary Hilda Solis, you just heard now, talking about uh, the unemployment numbers, which just came out today. Uh, And we're going to be talking about those later, as well, Adam, as um, mark-to-market accounting. Yeah, and I I, I think, Alex, you and I are very sympathetic to those listeners of ours out there who are saying, wait, how how did I become the kind of person who listens to a podcast about mark-to-market accounting? Welcome to our world. Exactly. <laughs> it is a, a big issue uh, because the, the, the future of the world depends on it. Yeah, it's not even a stretch to say that. There's a little rule uh, that was changed that has to do with mark-to-market accounting, uh, and it sort of governs the way banks value the things that they own. Some people say this rule change will help. Mark-to-market accounting is what got us into this mess, and changing it will get us out of the mess. Other people tear their hair out of their head and wail with despair and say, no, this is exactly the wrong thing to do. Mark-to-market accounting is exactly what we need, and changing this rule is... It's an invitation to banks to to lie. To lie, exactly. So um, we're going to talk about that, but also on today's show, we have just a a, a little something about the G20 summit, Uh, another mysterious thing. You hear this phrase in the news, the G20 summit. It sure sounds important, but but what's going on there? And... um, We have a lovely listener postcard uh, from a half-built subdivision. But first, Alex, the Planet Money Indicator, 663,000. That is the number of jobs that were lost last month. Again, millions of jobs were created in the U.S. last month. Millions more were eliminated. The difference between the jobs created and lost is that number, negative 663,000. Not good. The unemployment rate is now at 8.5% which we get tired of saying this, is the highest rate since 1983. Right. And that number is really just a part of the overall story. There's also at least 9 million Americans who are uh, what the Bureau of Labor Statistics calls part-time for economic reasons, which means these are people, obviously, who who want a full-time job, who'd like a full-time job, but they can't get a full-time job. So they're not unemployed, but they're not making enough probably to live on. Right. And that 9 million number is also uh, near a 25-year high. And of course, this is the situation, this unemployment situation is is sort of affecting countries all over the world. And it's what everyone in the world is trying to fix, uh, specifically the leaders of the so-called G20. It includes the leaders of the world's 20 largest economies. And uh, they were in London yesterday, Thursday, for a single day. And when you get the t- leaders of the 20 richest countries, what happens in a single day? They come out with a $1.1 trillion plan. Um, this is money that they collectively are going to spend. A lot of that money is going to go to the International Monetary Fund, sort of like an emergency fund for the world um, to help bail out countries that have gotten into serious economic trouble. And lately that's been places like Iceland and Hungary. The G20 also took steps toward tightening financial regulations which was a big concern for continental Europe. Um, The communique from this meeting specifically mentions cracking down on hedge funds and tax havens. It actually says, the era of banking secrecy is over. 
There's so much nice language in there that our own Laura Conaway called up our good friend economist Adam Posen with the Peterson Institute. Um, he was there at the meeting. Um, he was, although he's American, he was advising the UK on its agenda. And Laura asked him why it sounded like a Hallmark card, how nicely this thing was written. Everybody was getting along. And Adam Posen said, well, there was one big player who stands to be unhappy, China. It's very hard to see what China got out of this. China came in and made a very big noise over the last couple of weeks that they wanted addressing three big issues. They felt correctly, in my view, in most people's view, they have not gotten a fair share of the power and the representation at the International Monetary Fund, at the World Bank, at the various international organizations, given that the world's third largest economy and second most populous nation. And there was a lot of blather hallmark card about, as you put it, about we're going to relook at governance, but they didn't do anything to really give the Chinese or the Brazilians or the rest of emerging markets new voice. The second thing the Chinese raised to a lot of news in the last couple of weeks was various threatening noises about, well, we really are a little worried that the U.S. is being spendthrift, the dollar is going to go through the floor, all these U.S. Treasury bills we own are not going to be worth very much. Why are we doing this? Um, and I always felt that fear was exaggerated, but it was underlying underlining a real Chinese concern, which is they want greater exchange rate stability in the world. They don't want to have to worry about the dollar going up and down, euro going up and down. And there's absolutely no mention, at least on my reading of the communique, of anything about exchange rates unless I missed it. And it certainly wasn't prominent. The third thing which the Chinese got a tiny bit on is they're very worried about getting up against trade protectionism, because, of course, their whole economy is built on exporting a lot to places like the U.S. There is so, a lot in the communique about that, trade protectionism. Yes, there is. It unfortunately, is more of the Hallmark card language. There is a wee bit of something better in two statements. There's a statement that the WTO, the World Trade Organization, is going to do some naming and shaming of people who do put up new protections, and there was a statement about we're not going to engage in financial protectionism through our fiscal policies, meaning stuff like the Buy America plan. The problem is what they really needed was a statement, we're going to name and shame and avoid bad protectionist measures, even if they're not officially illegal, according to the WTO. Because there's all kinds of stuff countries have undertaken, like our Buy America clause, like export subsidies, subsidies in India, like French preferences for French-made cars that, strictly speaking, are legal but are real protection, and they didn't really address that. Why would China agree to sign on to a communique out of which it gets so little? It's a very good question. Um, I mean, the good the good way to look at it is, you know, a lot of these countries come there because they do realize there's a global crisis, and even if there's not something in it specifically for them, it's good for the world, and they want to be part of it. So Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Russia, you know, a number of other countries, India, were at the meeting and didn't get things that necessarily were their agenda either and still signed on. But it is striking, and it is an interesting question, especially since the Chinese so upped the rhetoric in the recent weeks, why suddenly now they didn't seem to get much traction in the actual negotiating discussion process. I'm not 
entirely sure that's a good thing, both for long-term systemic reasons, it would be better to give China more voice, and also because a couple of things they were advocating weren't so bad. But presumably, you know, nobody forced the Chinese premier or anything. Um, so presumably, he he made the decision that things were okay. Um, you mentioned the first time we talked, Adam, that part of the fun of, of being at one of these is the inside baseball and who ends up breaking off and talking to yeah. whom. Any inside baseball to, to take note of here? Well, the inside baseball that got the biggest coverage was that the Canadian prime minister, for some reason, wasn't there when they wanted to do a group photo. And then when they finally retook the group photo, the Italian prime minister, Sergio Berlusconi, was very intent on making sure he was absent so he could show off he was important, too. But the the more interesting inside baseball will trickle out over the next couple of days. I think one thing that comes out very clearly is that Angela Merkel from Germany is really playing her hand very well. Um, she had Sarkozy making a lot of noise, but in the end, she got most of what she went into the meeting wanting, and without having to stomp out, and without having to draw a lot of attention herself, even though she seemed to get a lot of face time with the Queen Elizabeth in the footage I saw. The other thing that's interesting in terms of inside baseball is I don't know if it's Obama's charm or what, but the people who had bilaterals with Obama, including, importantly, the Russian Prime Minister Medvedev, seem to have come away quite mollified. Um, I think it's those iPods he's handing out. Is that it? I mean, again, that sort of underlines what a lousy gift he gave Gordon Brown last month, but... You know, if 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 he can export Apple that way, so much the better. <laughs> All right. So if you met with President Obama, you walked away a little bit happier than when you than when you walked in. It seemed. Yeah, and what's interesting is it doesn't seem to be just star power. Um, I mean, again, to their credit, they seem to have gotten good reactions out of people. You know, agreements to have future summits. More importantly, from people like say the Russians, implicit agreement they weren't going to make a lot of obstreperous noise at this conference. So that's pretty good. You know, Alex, it's uh, before this whole crisis started, my job was, as you know, international business and economics correspondent for NPR, which meant I was covering what I thought of as this very slow moving story, like a generational story, something that would happen over decades, which is China and India and Brazil becoming much more powerful forces, maybe Russia as well, and and beginning to challenge U.S. power, although I think the U.S. obviously will remain the dominant economy for a long time to come. And this crisis, it sort of puts all that out of your head because there's so much acute stuff. And and I find it fascinating that we're now – we're sort of seeing this fast-moving crisis rubbing up against this longer kind of maybe generation-long competition, uh, you know, sort of all together in one meeting. It's, it's Yeah. And it also seems like the crisis is actually maybe accelerating this, this, this generational story that you were seeing and maybe making it happen. Maybe it's going to be half a generation now. Or right, right. You know, happening much faster. You know, our yeah. economy's gotten smaller and China's economy is continuing to grow, right? I mean, and, and it's much harder for our stance in these things to be that not only are we the richest country, but we're the country that actually knows how to do financial markets. We're flawless and you're a moron, yeah. which is, I think, how a lot of administrations have dealt with the rest of the world. Right. That's a harder argument to make these days. It also is just fascinating hearing like the, 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 the story about Berlusconi sort of staging his walkout just to show that he was important. It's just sort of like 
you just think to yourself, really? <laughs> like really? this is the these yeah. are the people who are in charge of the direction of the world in the in the coming you know decade that like they're going to be have these petty tirades about whether or not they're in the picture or not. Yeah, I guess it's just Canada and Italy though. We can. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows they're insecure nations anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, one of the big things that came out of the G20, is, is, as we mentioned, was that at the same time that the, the world was agreeing that we need to strengthen and tighten financial regulation, our very own Financial Accounting Standards Board here in the United States, which is the group that sets the accounting rules for all domestic companies and banks and financial institutions, said um, sort of did the opposite, or at least that's what a lot of people are saying. Right. I mean, this is this mark to market. You keep hearing mark to market in the news. We have done this to death. Go listen to our Bad Banks show, which goes into it. And we've done it on the podcast a million times. But basically, there's been this tension between those who say, if, if a bank owns an asset, it has to tell us what the value of that asset is in the open marketplace. And that's the only way we know for sure we know how much the bank is worth. Um because banks lie. They, if, if we don't force them to tell us an objective price, they're going to lie and say the thing's worth more than it is. And we're not going to know how sick the bank really is. The banks say, that's ridiculous. These assets aren't selling because the economic crisis and, and this stupid mark-to-market rule is forcing us to to say something that isn't true on the downside, that forcing us to put way too little value. And that's why these banks are in so much trouble. So it, it, it is kind of fascinating that we are – there is an argument that the global economic crisis is based on an accounting rule, specifically Statement 157. I'm holding it in my hand of the Financial Accounting Standards Board code. Which deals with this issue mark to market, which you just yeah. described. And, and basically what happened was yesterday the rule got changed and people, um, people in favor of the rule change said that's great. We've, it's, it's made it easier for banks not to mark things to market, not to use the price that this would in have to be sold. In the sick economy. In yeah. the sick economy. They're saying it's ridiculous that we would have to – right now we couldn't get what it's actually worth selling it because nobody has any money. Everybody's broke. The markets are dysfunctional. So we shouldn't have to carry it at that value on our books. Other people are saying, no, that's the worst thing you possibly could have done. Now banks, it's making it basically easier for them to lie. And there's one other little wrinkle here, which I find really interesting. One other – I talked to a guy who's an accounting professor who's actually in favor of this rule. And basically, it sort of depends on who you're talking to. You've got – if you're talking to a bunch of like community and regional banks and they're saying to you, listen, accounting professor, we are getting hammered here. We didn't create this problem. We didn't create these CDOs. And we're just like a community bank and we bought a mortgage-backed security from a very safe place from Fannie and Freddie and it's really safe. It's well underwritten. And now our regulator is making us write down even though it's still performing, even though we're still getting returns. And so, you know, you hear that enough and you think this mark-to-market rule needs to be changed. It's killing healthy banks. It's killing banks. healthy banks. But then if, on the other side, if you're like an equity analyst or somebody who's like looking at these big banks and you're like, I can't figure out what's going on in the big banks. I feel like they've been lying to me. I feel like they're going to continue to lie to me. This rule really gets you upset because it, it seemingly makes it easier now for the banks to lie because they can just sort of say, oh, it's a dysfunctional market. The security that I'm claiming is you know, is worth 70 cents on the dollar. I'm going to continue to claim it's worth 70 cents or maybe I'm going to make it 85 cents now because I'm going to use my quote unquote model instead of the market. So can't we just have a law that good people get to 
<laughs> to avoid mark to market and bad people have to follow mark to market. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and, and, and so this is the interesting thing. I talked to a professor, a guy named Joshua Ronan, who's a professor of accounting at the Stern School of Business at NYU. And he said, you know, he said that it's killing community banks, but he worries because mark to market cuts both ways. In the in a in a boom time like we had before, it know, might oh it might be priced at a bubble level. It's a priced at a bubble level, high level, which of course the banks love. And so now the the because of the way this rule was changed, the banks will be able to use the bubble prices in the bubble years. But then when it's ba- when it's downturn, they're going to be able to say, oh, it's a dysfunctional market, and we have to use our model. Well, I I'm not going to take a firm stand, but anything that allows banks to invest way more during a bubble and then hide their losses during a downtime. That sounds like a good thing to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So um, now mark to market, I hate it whenever we have to talk about it because it's so abstract and kind of obscure. But I hope, I hope, I hope maybe this podcast plus our Bad Banks show plus 50 other things we've done are helping you understand it. Please let us know if we're working or not. But it is connected to the real world. Yes, and in fact, um, real homes and apartments in real neighborhoods. And in fact, a listener that we heard from, a listener named Amy Ennis, she checked in with our very own Laura Conway from Clover, South Carolina the other day. And uh, we should say that uh, South Carolina is currently suffering the second highest unemployment rate in the country. It's 11 percent. That's, that's really bad. And uh, But Amy and her husband bought their place in a new subdivision back in 2007 at the height of the real estate bubble. When we first moved in, um, I I had extra comfort in it because the builder of the neighborhood, uh, the developer, his mom lives in the neighborhood. And I thought, well, that's a good sign. So we got a house here, and since the bottom's fallen out of the market, they stopped building in phase three. And so all winter, we looked at clay lots because the soil here is basically red clay. But it had all the wiring for the lots were ready to go. You know, cable company had come in, the phone company had come in and laid all the wiring. So they're all set to go. Um, And just recently, uh, about a week or so ago, the developer, his name's Johnny, he came in and uh, covered it all up, seeded it all. And I told my husband, I said, I guess he's not planning to build for some time. And, um, And so I'm just, I'm waiting and seeing uh, but it's been since last fall was the last time he built a house. Now, when you say he came in and seeded it, do you mean for grass? Yeah, he seeded the lots. He he seeded the lots, so he's going to have to come in and mow them. I mean, that's what's crazy. Um, but he had to seed them, um, I guess, just, I guess he was worried about problems with erosion. And he definitely, obviously, doesn't think he's going to be building anytime soon. So that said to you, this thing is on hold. Exactly. And it's, my neighborhood is on hold. <laughs> Do you worry about your house value going down if you're sitting in a half-built subdivision? Yes. I told my husband that I'm afraid it will lose half its value before this is all over with. And I have a very doom and gloom outlook, I know. But um, I really think that that what we paid for this house was way too... Just in hindsight, as being a little kid and growing up in Charlotte and knowing what my parents paid for our houses, this house isn't really worth what we paid for it. So uh, Amy Ennis sent us a picture of this neighborhood. I, I was trying to picture it, but now you, we can actually just see it. And we're going to put that on our blog at npr.org slash money. 
You know, and, and Adam, this is like sort of a, it, actually her little postcard from her neighborhood in, in, in South Carolina it gets to a little bit at the heart of the problem with mark to market because Amy is exactly the, the thing that banks and bank regulators are trying to figure out. She has a mortgage, probably with a bank. It sounds like she's intent on keeping paying her mortgage. She hasn't lost her job or anything. But if you were a bank regulator looking at her situation on paper, she's living in a half-built subdivision where homes have lost half their value, it would seem prudent to suppose that maybe she is more likely to default. In other words, her mortgage is riskier than it was. In other words, you have to reduce the price. So it's tricky. It, it, it's, it's very tricky. And that's why we here at Planet Money promise you absolutely no answers some days. <laughs> and just, we're just going to help give you a fuller picture of the confusion. Yeah, exactly. We, we help to explain to you why you are confused exactly. And, and to justify, hey, if you're confused, it's not like some guy knows everything that's happening and you just are out of the secret. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much for listening. Please visit npr.org slash money. Send us emails at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alec Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. 